And if you need a Bible to follow along in our study, just lift up your hand and the ushers will drop off a Bible to you so you can follow along. And we left off in the middle of, well, towards the more of the beginning of chapter 32. We are in uh, verse 15 tonight as we uh, resume. And hopefully we will finish the book in, uh, in our time. So, why are you laughing? <laughs> we are in the final chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses is in the final moments of his life. As he's about to go to heaven, we are in the last segment of his ministry as he gives his departing uh, words of exhortation and blessing to the children of Israel. And in chapter 32, where we find ourselves tonight, we join Moses in the middle of a song that he was told by God to write and then to teach to the people of Israel. Israel, uh, you know, um, kind of a final warning and exhortation that they would learn by song, teach to their children, and that would succeed from generation to generation and be a continual reminder to them, a continual testimony uh, of God's faithfulness, but also of their waywardness and, uh, and, and of their call to constantly return to him. And so Moses is teaching them this song, and we left off kind of right in the middle of it last week. Now, if this song that Moses was writing had a title, I believe the title of the song would be The Prodigal Son. Now, we all know the story of the prodigal son uh, from the New Testament. And the story goes that there's a wise, wealthy, benevolent father who provides richly and well for his sons. And one of those sons doesn't like the restrictions or the barriers or the confinement of being in his father's house. And so he asks his father for the inheritance, his share of what he will get when his father passes off the scene so that he can go out on his own, leave his father's house, and in a sense make a statement. And that statement would be something like, I can do this life thing and I can make it and do well for myself without having the boundaries and the restrictions that come from being underneath my father's roof. And so his father wisely grants this request and he gives to this son what he asks for and he bids him to go out and to try to do what he can to make something of his life on his own. So he goes and he squanders all that was given to him of his father. And he watches his life go into a tailspin until he realizes one day that he's traded in the boundaries of his father's house for a whole new set of boundaries, the four walls of a pink pen. And as he's there in the den of pigs, longing to fill his belly with the husks of corn, the slop, literally, that the pigs are eating, he realizes, he comes to his senses and he says, hey, even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do out here. And so he returns to his father's house a transformed man. He's transformed 
from one who sees the boundaries and restrictions that his father had from seeing those restrictions as something that was designed to keep him contained to someone who sees those restrictions as something designed to keep evil out. Do you see the difference? See, under one set, hey, these restrictions, these boundaries, these laws, they're so, uh, you know, uh, suppressive, and, and, and I can't live the life that I want to live, and, and these things are keeping me in. But he realized when he came to his senses in that pig pen that, no, that's not the purpose of these boundaries, these restrictions. Rather, the purpose of them is to keep evil out so that I can enjoy the substance that's supplied for me under my father's care. Now, to his delight, he finds that his father is willing to receive him again. And he not only receives him, but he throws his robe, his own robe on him, kills the fatted calf, and has a celebration because his lost son had returned home. Now, that's the story of the prodigal son. And it is also the story, in a sense, of the song that God is instructing Moses to teach. See, God in this song is the wise, wealthy, benevolent father who cares and provides things richly for his sons. The son in the story, of course, is Israel, the nation that God has separated unto himself, a nation that is young, that's immature, that doesn't understand. And the part of the song that we already looked at last week was the part of the wise and benevolent father. And he testifies concerning the care and the provision and the upbringing that he gave to his people, his nation, his inheritance. And where we pick up, where we resume in this song, in verse 15, is the part of the song where Israel now says, that's it. Give me my share of the inheritance and I'm going to go my way because I don't like the restrictions, the boundaries, the limitations that are placed upon me being in my father's will, being in my father's house, if you would. And so as we pick up in verse 15, we have the rebellion of the son, the rebellion of Israel here. And so it says, read with me, verse 15, it says, but Jeshurun, which is just another name, it means the righteous one, and it's speaking of Israel. He keeps using that phrase as we go through this. He says, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. He says, you turned, you turned on me in the height of your prosperity. In the time when I had my blessing upon you to the greatest degree, when you were enjoying my providence and the bounty that I give to the fullest that you could, it was then that you said, this is great, but we don't want the restrictions. We don't want to serve you alone. For the child of God, I think the most perilous place that we ever are in is in the place of prosperity. In the time when God's blessing is the most upon our lives, that's the time when we are in the most danger. That's when it's the easiest to turn away from the Lord, to trust in and enjoy the things from him rather than who the things we have are from. And that's what happened to Israel. It was when they were full, when God was blessing them, it was then it says that you kicked. The the idea is that you pushed off of me. That you said, I want to get away from you. I want what you give, but I want to enjoy it my own way. I don't want to do things your way. 
So they turned in their prosperity. Then he says what they did. Verse 16, he says, They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. They turned to other gods. They said, we do not want your boundaries, your restrictions, and so we will find something that's more conducive to what we meld with, that we go along with, that we enjoy, that we would do. A false god in the life of a child of God is anything that the child of God turns to or looks to to meet a need that they have outside of themselves. Cocaine is a false god. It's turning to something for strength from a foreign substance, something to have an edge or to get ahead or to go go beyond and prosper in something. It's strength that doesn't come from the Lord. It's blessing or prosperity in a sense of what you get from that, the edge that you would get. It's outside of God. It's a false God. It's something that you're leaning upon. Money can be a false god, trusting in it, hoping in it, leaning upon it to be something in your life to help you in a way wherein you're not relying upon God, but you're trusting in a a foreign substance, something that has no life, no power to really help you. The Dow Jones can be a false god. To put your trust and your hope in something that you know, rises and falls and, and, and to let your peace be determined by the status of things economic. That can be a false God. It's anything that you would put your trust in outside of the true and the living God. And he says, you did that, Israel. You turned away from me. And then he says the third thing, the third indictment that, they, uh, that he has against them in verse 18. It says, of the rock who begot you, you were unmindful. You have forgotten the God who fathered you. He says, you forgot me. You say, how can someone forget the Lord? The answer is right there in the verse. He says, you were unmindful. He uses the word. And that's how you forget the Lord, is when you're unmindful of him. See, I'm learning, and I don't know if this is just a man thing. I think it's a human thing. Is that anything that I'm unmindful of, I ultimately am a forgetter of. Ask my wife, you know. She told me, I think it was just last night, she said, make sure you give Riley his yogurt before he goes to bed. Yes, honey, I'll give uh, Riley the yogurt. No, 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 make sure you give Riley the yogurt. I'll give him the yogurt. I guess guess what? I was unmindful of the yogurt. (laughs) And so guess what happened? Riley never got his yogurt, you know. So Georgia said, well, did, did you? I said, yes, I, I, I remember you. But, but did I say, yes, I'll give him the yogurt? Did I say, yeah, 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 I'll give him the yogurt. I'll give him the yogurt. Because there's a difference, you know. <laughs> they were unmindful of God and ultimately led to, led to them being forgetful of God. And that's what happens to you and I, is that we don't call him to mind. Our Bible sits on the shelf from Sunday to Sunday, and sometimes two Sundays go by, and we never give a thought to reading some scripture, taking some time to meditate on the things of God, or to separate ourselves a little moment, even in the middle of a work day, just to commune with him, to be mindful of him. That's the first step to being forgetful of him. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he compared the word of God and the life of the person of God to the food that we eat. It's something that we live upon. 
And so we don't want to be forgetful of him as they were. So they forgot him. They turned to false gods. They rebelled in their prosperity. And then in verse 19 now, he gives to us the result of that forsaking. What happens when a prodigal or a son says to God, listen, I want what you give, but I don't want you in my life. I want to enjoy my father's fortune. I want to live in the luxury that that he provides. I want the wellness of soul that comes from being a follower of him, but I want to go my own way and do my own thing, and I don't want God in my life. What happens? That's what we get in verses 19 through 27. He says that when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faith. Now, the first thing that God says he's going to do is he says, I'm going to hide my face. You think, well, good, that's all he's going to do is he's just going to hide his face from me. He, he's not going to take everything away. He's not going to cause my health to descend. He's not going to, you know, take my house or my job. He's just going to hide his face. Okay, that's not so bad. I think I can handle that as a first step in, in God's chastisement upon my life. No, 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 you don't understand. This is the absolute worst thing that they could have happen to them as a people. And it's the worst thing that anyone could experience who is a follower of God, to have God turn his face away from you. The face of God in Scripture speaks of his favor. It speaks of his kindness. It speaks of his blessing. It speaks of the goodness that he has. It speaks of his delight that he takes in you as a son or a daughter of his. And for God to turn his face away, it means that that is then removed from your life. The face of God is the poetic epicenter of what it means to be the delight of God as his child. The blessing that the priests were commanded to give upon the people, that that, that they would bless the people with when they would congregate. Numbers chapter 6, verse uh, 23 through 27, the priest would say to the people, he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance, that's his face, Lift up his face upon you and give you peace. That was the foundation of the blessing that they would enjoy as the people of God, you know. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 15 says, In the light of the king's face there is life, and in his favor, or his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. Psalm chapter 89 verse 15 says, Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord in the light of thy countenance or of thy face. Psalm chapter 42, um, verses 5 and 11. You know, it's that uh, chapter of of Psalms. If you ever struggle with depression, that's your chapter where he says, "As, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so panteth my soul after you, O Lord. And two times in that Psalm, in verse 5 and then again in verse 11, he, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? And then he says, hope thou in God, for I will yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And then in verse 11, he says, because he is the health, H-E-A-L-T-H, the health of my countenance and my God. And so to have the face of God, the countenance of God turned away from you is to watch your whole world go dark, to to have your countenance, in a sense, uh, go dim, you know. 
Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 80, verse 3. The psalmist says, Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we will be saved. Psalm chapter 30, verse 7. Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. And then Psalm 27, verse 8, it says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. And so what's happening here is God says, I'm going to turn my face from you, is that they are literally being blockaded from experiencing God's favor, God's pleasure, God's goodness, God's kindness in his life, in their lives. And that's dark. You don't want to live in a place like that. See, their problem was is that they were very interested and concerned with what God gave them from his hand. But they weren't as concerned with what was going on with his faith. See, your life and my life, our joy or our blessing or what we experience in this life is not because of what God gives us when he opens his hand. He opens his hand. Psalm 145, it says you open your hand and you satisfy the longing, the desire of every living thing. But it isn't what's in the hand of God that makes or breaks our life. It's what's in the face of God. See, if God's face is looking on you with delight, then your life is going to be blessed. You can have nothing, not even two mites to rub together, but your life is going to be blessed. Your countenance will be lifted. If the hand of God is open to you, but the face of God is against you, you've got nothing. So God said, I'm going to hide my face from them first and let them realize that it isn't about what's in my house. It's about what's in my heart. It's about the love that I have towards them, the, the father that I've been to them, of what I've given, that what, what is theirs as my sons and daughters, what belongs to me. And so he says, I'll hide my face, and then I'll see what their end will be. And then I love what he says in verse 21 and 22. Notice this. He says that they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. And I will move them to anger by a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with their increase and set on fire the fountains of the mountains. Basically, what God says to them is not only am I going to turn my faith from them, but listen to what God's going to do. He says, I'm going to send people into their life that are going to treat them the way they've treated me. He said, they've provoked me to jealousy by a God that's not really a God, a lowercase g, an idol. And so I'm going to provoke them to jealousy by a nation that isn't a nation. Do you know what he's talking about? Ultimately, he's talking about us. He's talking about you and I, the Gentiles, those that would enjoy the relationship with him that he wanted to have with Israel, but Israel never entered into because of their obstinance, their stubbornness. But you and I experience the fellowship with God by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the Jews look at us and they're provoked to jealousy because we're fellowshipping with their God. And so God says, I'm going to provoke them to jealousy. But listen, because here's what God does in the life of a child of his that turns their back upon him. Is that first the face is turned away. Things start to, to, to go out of control. But then the second thing he does oftentimes is that he puts people in your life and in my life to treat us the way we're treating him. I talk to people sometimes and they say, I I don't get it, I I just feel like my spouse. There's a problem because I'm getting the leftovers. I feel like I'm initiating and I'm initiating and I'm initiating, but, but I get no response back. 
I get nothing back from them. There's no affection. There's no response. There's very little in return. Or I talk to someone who says, you know, I'm at work and my job is such a frustration because I feel like I just give and give and give. And there's no appreciation. There's nothing that's given back. Or someone says, my kids, I don't know why, but they just, they won't respect me. They'll do it to my face. I mean, when I'm talking to them, they'll listen, but then they go out and they're just doing their own thing. They're gone. And sometimes I'll say to a person, I'll say, hey, listen, could it possibly be that maybe God is allowing the people in your life to treat you the way you're treating him? And sometimes people will look and say, ooh, maybe, let's see, giving him the leftovers, the last of what I've got. He's constantly reaching out, and I'm not responding. Uh, Respect lip service in church. I lift my hands, but then I go out, and I'm doing my own thing. I'm not following him wholeheartedly, and, and that's exactly what's happening to me on the outside. And God says, well, sometimes I'll do that to get your attention so that you'll recognize and see what I feel, the way I love you and what I want in our relationship, but what you're ignoring and missing out on. Now, that's not always the case if someone's treating you bad or, you know, if you're going through a trial in your marriage or with your kids. But sometimes it's a good thing to ask, Lord, is this the way I'm treating you, what I'm doing to you? So God says, I'm going to allow that to happen to you, Israel, because of your rebellion. And then he goes on in verses 23 through 27 to, just by way of summation, he's going to bring disasters He's going to bring the devourer. He's going to bring division, the sword. He's going to bring destruction. And then he says that there will be terror in verse, the middle of verse 25 there. And he goes through and he just says, it's going to be a tailspin. Your life, if you turn away from me, if you say as a prodigal, I think I can do this my own way. I want what you're going to give me from your hand, but I don't want your restrictions, your ways. God says, this is what's going to happen in your life. And then he illustrates, and then he gives them, down, look down in verse 28, and he gives them his plea, what he cries out to them in, by way of just reasoning with them. He says this, he says, for they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. In other words, if only they could somehow see what's at the end of the road that they're on. If somehow they could look into the future and see the four walls of the pig pen that they will end up in if they continue on this course of straying from my ways, of walking away from my favor and my loving kindness. What's the end of the road for the person that worships money? who makes money their aim, that seeks to live a life to acquire wealth and to make a name for themselves financially. What is the end of it? Those people end up alone. Sometimes they're rich in substance, but they're lean in soul. They have worldly treasure, but they're spiritually bankrupt. What's the end of someone who makes drugs their God, their road that they're on? Where do they end up? Well, you don't have to look too far to recognize, to see the destitution. The clinics that are filled with people. What addictions have done to people's lives because they thought somehow they could beat that rap and not fall under that cloud, what, kept, what comes on that road. What happens when people make illicit relationships and pleasure their God? Where do they end up? Where does that road end? God is saying, would that you could see the end of the road that you're on. I remember when I was a senior in high school, not saved, probably as far from God at that point that I would be. 
And we took a school trip to New York City, and I'm from rural America, upstate, farm town. You know, you'd throw a rock and hit a cow. You know. And the city was so alluring to me, to see the buildings and the lights. and I mean, it was so attractive. And I remember on one of the days walking down the city streets, and I saw on the side, sitting against a building, a bum. Sitting there with tattered clothes, torn and dusty, a dirty face, wrinkles with you know dirt caked in the crevices so deep it looked like who knows the last time they were cleansed, you know, matted hair and a little sign that said you know something along the lines of "We'll work for food." You know, nowadays they just say "I need money for beer and hookers." You know, they've come a long way. You know, but 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 I remember seeing that scene, you know, and something got my attention. I remember that. And at that time, you know, you're busy, you're hanging out with your friends, but I saw that scene and my eye caught that image as I walked by that guy and saw what he, was, what he was and where he was at. And that image never left my mind. And you know the Lord used that. Because for the next two years, while I was straying further and further from the Lord, there was a gentle whisper that now I know whose voice it was. It was constantly saying, that's the end of the road that you're on. If you continue living the way you're living and doing the things you're doing, it might take five years, 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years, but that is where you're going to end up because that's where the road you're on leads. And God is pleading with his people, and he's saying, would that they would consider the end of the road that you're on. What's the end of the road that you're on? See, God has good things in mind, heavenly storehouses in mind. Treasures and riches, abundance, what we're going to read about in the next chapter. The things that he wants to do in the life of the child of God. And he says, oh, that they would walk with me. Oh, that they would listen to my counsel. That they would walk in my ways. That they might enjoy what's really theirs. But they didn't. And he goes on in verses 30 all the way down through uh, verse 38, and he further describes the destruction that they're going to experience because of their rebellion. But then in verse 39, and you can look there with your eyes, he gives them the call to return. And he says, now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. The first point that God makes in his call to his people to return is he says that there is no other God besides me. That you can look, you can search, you can go out there and take my fortune, take your share of the inheritance, and you can go and you can look for something that will satisfy your life. You can look for something that's going to be to you what I only can be to you, but you're not going to find it. Because I only am God, and besides me, there is no other. You're not going to find anything better than God. I love what one man of God said to his rebellious son as he was leaving the home and saying, I don't want to follow your Jesus, and I'm going to go find my own thing. And this son of this man, he took his stuff and he packed up his car. And and as he was leaving the house, the father called him to the door. And the father grabbed him by the shirt and he pulled him real close and he said, listen, son, you can go, you're free, but you owe me one thing. He said, I changed your diapers. I fed you. I put bandages on you. I bailed you out of countless situations. I sat in principal's offices. I I dealt with every problem and issue that you ever brought upon this house. You owe me one thing. 
And he looked at him right in the eyes and he said, if you out there find anything better than Jesus, I want to know about it. And he pushed him away and his son left. And about three months later, his son came home and he was beat up and he was tattered and he was torn and he was tired. And he came to the front door and his dad opened the door and he said, Dad, there ain't nothing out there that's better than Jesus. And he came home. And God is saying, you can go out and you can look, but you're not going to find anything out there that's better than me. And then he says in verse 40, he says, For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. What is God saying here? God is saying this. He's saying that there is no exception to this rule. What rule? The rule that if you go astray, that it's not going to happen to you. That somehow you can rebel. You can walk as far from God as you want to walk and somehow still seek to enjoy his presence or his favor. And and, and that you're not going to be affected by the consequences of those choices. God says there is no one that escapes the consequences of those choices. No one escapes. It's an irrevocable, unchangeable rule that if you turn away from me, you're going to experience hell. It's not God's judgment It's the natural consequences. It's the four walls of the pig pen. You can't escape it, he says. But then, I love it, verse 43, he says this. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and he will render vengeance to his adversaries. And listen, and he will provide atonement for his land and for his people. God says, you can turn from me but you can turn back because I've provided atonement. I've made a way for you. You say, what's the atonement? What is the way that God has provided for his people to return? Here's what it is. It's that the same face that shines upon you and me, the kindness and the favor and the love of God was turned to his enemies and was spat upon, was bruised, was smitten with a reed. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, it says that his visage, his appearance, his face, the same face that shines upon us in his favor, that his face was so marred that it was beyond the recognition of a human being. That no one had ever endured anything like he endured. And the reason why he endured that is so that you and I would have the privilege, the ability as prodigals to come home and say, Dad, I'm back. And he could say, son or daughter. I receive you. And so atonement is made by the hand of God himself so that his favor and his blessing can return. And that's the call. That's what God wants. He wants his people to return to him. Not because he's looking for them to bow the knee in some act of submission, but so that they might enjoy the life that he's provided for them and the call that he has for them. So Moses sings them this song, and it says in verse 44, So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, And he spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. 
And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over Jordan to possess. Listen, these boundaries, these restrictions that you think are designed to keep you in are actually designed to keep evil out. And they enable you to enjoy the life that I have designed, the fortune of your father, the luxury of living in my house. The father says, this isn't a futile thing for you. Listen to my word. Obey my commands. Listen, church, we've been going through Deuteronomy since January. What's the theme of the book? Come on, what's the theme of the book? Obedience, that's right. It's obedience. Why? 500 times. I mean, I'm guessing. It's got to be that Moses has said, obey Just do what God says. Why? Because he wants to do in your life things beyond what you could ever do for yourself. It's not a futile thing for you. It's your life. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, verse 48, and he says, Go up this mountain of Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession. And die on the mountain which you ascend and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. And here's why, verse 51. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go in there, into the land which I am giving unto the children of Israel. Moses had been commanded, you know the story, to speak to the rock so that water could come forth for the people who were thirsty. But Moses is in in his anger with the people because they were murmuring again. He took his rod and he smote the rock the second time. The first time he was told to smite the rock, but the second time he was told to speak to the rock. And God was painting a picture there. It was a picture of Christ who was smitten to provide living water for the people. But he was only smitten once. After that, he would only be spoken to. Ask of me, the Lord says. And Moses ruined the picture, but he did something else as well. He misrepresented God. He made the people think that God was angry at them when God wasn't angry at them. But Moses lifted up his staff and he said, you rebels. And he smote the rock in his hot temperedness. And God says, Moses, come here, get in the woodshed. And he takes him aside and he said, you misrepresented me. I'm not angry with them. I'm angry with you. And he said, you're not going into the promised land because of this. What? I, I mean, what? I, I I've done everything for this people. My whole life is dedicated to this people. Everything that I exist for revolves around bringing these people into the promised land. And now I can't go into the promised land because I made one mistake? Right. That's right, Moses. You're not going into the promised land. What? That's not... No, no, no. Listen, here's why. Two things. Number one, it is a lesson for us. You don't want to misrepresent God. Now, God doesn't punish everyone who ever misrepresents him. If that were the case, I wouldn't be here right now. But it is an everlasting principle for you and I that God wants to be rightly represented by his people in the world and that he takes notice of the things that we do and what we say and how we say it in his name. But furthermore, God is still painting a picture through these people. What's the picture? Here's what it is. Moses represents the law. He's called the law. The words law 
and Moses are used interchangeably throughout the rest of the Bible. Have you not read in Moses? Have you not read in the law? That they're, they're synonymous because Moses is the lawgiver. And here's the picture that God's painting, is that the law can never bring you into the promises of God. The law can never bring you into experiencing the richness and the fullness of what God has planned for your life. Why? Because the Bible says that if you keep the whole law and yet you stumble at one point, you make one mistake. You smite the rock a second time when you were only supposed to speak to it. One mistake and you can't go in if the law is what's carrying you into the land. And the law can never bring the people of God into the promises of God. Are you still tonight trying to enjoy the promised life in Jesus Christ by your good works and by keeping his laws and commands? You can't do it. His laws are a light to us. They keep us on the straight and the narrow path. They hedge us in from the attacks of the enemy and that which would rob, kill, and destroy. But the law is not what gives us our favor before God. We are brought into the promised land by not Moses, but Joshua, Yahshua, Jesus in the Aramaic. Same name. See, the law can't bring them in, but Joshua, Jesus, Yahshua, God is salvation. He will bring them into the promised land, the promises of God. And so Moses won't take them in, just like the law can't bring you and me in to the spiritual life. But Jesus can. Our Savior, Yahshua, he brings us into the promised land. And so Moses dies. He says, you shall see the land, but you shall not go there. Now, chapter 33 is the blessing that God gives, I'm sorry, that Moses gives from God to the people prior to him launching onto heaven. Now, I love chapter 33 because there's no curses. Everywhere else, there's the blessing for a few verses and then a whole lot of cursing if they turn away. But chapter 33, no curse. There's just blessing. Moses blesses these people. He does it tribe by tribe. And and, and I'm not going to take the time to, to read through these verses, but I do want to just share with you, highlight for you, the blessings that were given to each tribe. Now, to Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, which he lists first, uh, you know, he says, um, gives him the, 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 the thing of let him live and not die and let his men uh, not be few. That, that he would just have life. That he would live. Sometimes we think, don't we, that God wants us to die? That he's just looking for a slow way to get rid of us? I know I feel like that sometimes. It's like I would be a whole lot better off in God's kingdom if I were not part of it, (laughs) you know? And and sometimes we can get this idea that he doesn't want us, that he doesn't need us, but that's not the heart of God at all. He wants us to live. He wants us to prosper. And so the blessing of life is given to Reuben. Then to Judah, he, he, he gives this blessing, that he would be heard when he prays, that the work of his hands would be blessed and that he would be helped in battle against his enemies. That's the heart of God, what he wants to do in the life of his people, that when we pray, that he would answer and hear us, that he would bless the work of our hands, that what we do would be prospered and, and that it would, something would come of it, that it wouldn't be a waste of our strength or our time, and that God would help us in our battles. We all have battles. To Levi, that they, and, and Levi were the priests. They were the ministers. They were the ones that would serve the people. And so the prayer that is given concerning them is along those lines. He says that they would be good spiritual leaders. That they would live without compromise. 
And he brings up a, a, a scene from their history when the golden calf was, was built and Levi stood with the Lord. And even though it meant that they had to stand against their own family, they stood with the Lord. And God says that that would be the mark of my ministers, that they would be without compromise, that they wouldn't compromise my truth for the sake of popularity. He says that they would be good teachers, able to share the, the precepts of God with the people that they would be fruitful in prayer, that they would be blessed substantially, and then again, that they would be helped against their enemies. Then in verse 12, of Benjamin. Benjamin means the son of my right hand, and he prays that he would dwell in safety. Don't you long for that? Especially in a world where you, you never know what's going to happen, and you know, are we going to be safe in the days that are to come? And, and that's God's heart for his people, that he's going to keep them safe who's sheltered, he says there in in that verse, and then also, and it says that he shall dwell between his shoulders. What's between the shoulders? The heart. That you would be close to God's heart, that that's God's design and intent for your life. Now, I want to read what he says to Joseph, because when I read the blessing that was given to Joseph, the temperature in my heart went up like 50 degrees, and I want that to happen to you too. So I want to read from verse 13, and just listen to the blessing that God pronounces upon Joseph. It says, blessed of the Lord is his land, with the precious things of heaven, with the dew, with the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains. I don't even know what that means, but I want it, you know. (laughs) With the precious things of the everlasting hills. What does that mean? What are the everlasting hills? I don't even know, but when I see that word everlasting, I cry for it and I say, yes, you're the everlasting God and that's what I want because nothing in this world is lasting. Nothing that we have can can stay like it is. It's all fleeting and fading, but what he gives is eternal. With the precious things of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. And let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers and his glory is like the firstborn bull. And, you know, when he goes on and he talks about Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of of him and all. And, And I mean, look at what God wants to do for his people. Verse 18, to Zebulun and Issachar, he lumps them together and he says, gives to them, he says that they would dwell in high places and that they would have an abundance of substance. To Gad in verse 20, he says that you will over, or Gad means you will overcome, and he pronounces the blessing of an overcomer, someone who, who wins, who's victorious. To Dan, actually, I have no idea what, he, what he's giving to Dan. It just says, Dan is a lion's whelp, he shall leap from Bashan. And I don't know what that means, but it must be good, you know. And then of Naphtali, which means wrestling, he gives to him. He says that he would be satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord. Think about that word, satisfied. To just live a satisfied life. And it's what's given to Naphtali. To Asher, that he would be most blessed of the sons, that he would be favored of his brothers, that his uh, foot would be dipped in oil that's in luxury. And that his sandals be iron and bronze, natural resource. And that his days, or he says, as your days, so shall your strength be. And I love that. That as your days, so shall your strength be. That means that for as long as you live, you'll have enough strength to do what you have to do in your life. That, you know, how many of us want to live the last 10 years of our life, you know, 
not able to, to walk or able to see. But no, that, that as our days are, so also would our strength be. And so he blesses them. Now, um, he left out the tribe of Simeon. And I don't know why. I just thought I'd tell you that so you could not listen to anything else I say and just wonder why he didn't bless Simeon. Um, but he didn't. But you say, okay, well, why is it that we would take the time to highlight the blessings that God would give to Israel? I mean, does this have anything to do with us? It absolutely does. And here's why. Because in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, the Apostle Paul calls the church the Israel of God. Now, when he says that, he's not saying, and listen to me, he's not saying that the church has replaced Israel. They are separate. They're different. There's a distinction between the two peoples. But what he is saying is that we have become those who are governed by God. That's what Israel means. We're his people. He's provoked Israel to jealousy by accepting Gentiles, by embracing us, by birthing this church thing. But if you're a part of the church, you and I, we have it even better than them. And here's why. Because to them, the blessing was divided by tribe. I mean, if you were Dan in that whole thing, you were like, oh, I got the bedroom set. He got the Lamborghini. I mean, a lion's whelp? What in the world? You know, why couldn't I be part of Joseph? I want the everlasting hills. Ah, you know. But, but listen, for you and I, we read the things that God says here. And whether it be what he gave to Gad or to Joseph, all of it is yours and mine in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that all of the promises of God in Jesus Christ, and that's us, are yes and amen. And that means this. It means that when you say, Jesus, in you, can I have the blessing that was pronounced upon Joseph? He says, yes. Amen. So be it. But Lord, I really want the, the strength as my days. So yes, amen. And so this blessing that was given to them, divided by tribe, is all encompassing. It's what God's heart is for you and for me, for his people. We're the blessed of the Lord. It's what he desires to do within our lives. And it becomes all that much more precious when we realize that these things are true in God's heart for you and I. He goes on then in verse 26 and he says, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you. And in his excellency as on the clouds, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Love that verse. You say, me too. But underneath what? He says, underneath are the ever, underneath what? Underneath whatever thread you're dangling from. I heard the story about a young man who was seeking to be initiated into a fraternity in his college. And part of the initiation ceremony is, you know, that he had to be lowered into a, an empty well shaft by a rope. And he had to hold on to the rope while he goes down. He's dipped in water and then he's pulled out again out of the water by this rope as he hangs suspended there in the hands of his, you know, would-be brothers in the fraternity. And so what these guys did is, is they, they measured out the rope and they blindfolded this man and they lowered him at night down this well shaft and then they, they lowered him to the point where the rope was completely, you know, extended and then they tied it off and they left. 
And so he's hanging there by this rope, and he's like, yeah, this is great. I'm going to be part of it. And then, and then slowly, little by little, he, he loses the strength, and, and, he, and his hands are, 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 are slipping. And he goes, come on, guys. Come on, guys. This, this isn't funny anymore. This, this is, this, I'm getting tired. Where'd you go? And, and he hears nothing. There's no response. And, and as his white knuckles start to give way and, and the rope burn as he begins to slide down the road, come on, guys, come on, come on, come on. And, and finally, after however long it was, he loses his grip and he was four inches off the ground. And then he goes, oh, and everybody laughs and ah, ha, ha, and they pull him out of the well, you know. But how many times for you and I do we feel like that in our life? Lord, come on. Lord, I'm, I'm hanging here. You're leaving me out to dry. When are you going to come through? I mean, I know your word and I know your promises, but, but this is getting difficult. And finally, we get to the point where we say, I just can't hang on anymore. And our grip lets go and we fall into the everlasting arms. And he's right there. And, and, and it comes through and the whole time and you say, Lord, you were there the whole time. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety. The fountain of Jacob alone in the land of grain and new wine. His heaven shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. And then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Now what Moses is experiencing here in these last moments of life is supernatural. You cannot, from the top of Mount Nebo, physically see the entire span of what is, what would be Israel as Moses would see it. Furthermore, you get the idea that as Moses is looking into the land, he's seeing not just the landscape, but he's seeing prophetically, spiritually, all that will be. He sees the territories all laid out. That hadn't happened yet. He sees Dan in the far north, and he calls it the north all the way down to Zoar, which would later be Beersheba. And Israel was measured from Dan to Beersheba. You'll read that throughout. But Dan wouldn't rebel and, and, and leave their place in the middle and move to the northern territory for another 50 years. And so what Moses is seeing here is God is showing him all that's going to be as they go into the land and God divides it to them and God fulfills the word that he gives to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he lets Moses see it even though Moses isn't going to go in. But he will go in. See, in, in Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that, Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus and he was transfigured before them and there appeared two, Moses and Elijah. Moses got in. It just wouldn't be in this life. It would be later, you see. But he gets in. And then in verse 5 through the end of the book, we have the eulogy of Moses. As God looks over his life and Moses dies, it says this, verse 5, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. 
And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Now, if we knew where the grave of Moses was, or if they did, they would have built a shrine and it would have become a source of idolatry for them because that's what they did, you know? And so God says, I'm not going to let that happen. No one's going to know where this is. I'll bury him and I'll take care of it uh, myself, you know? But it's interesting to me that, you know, Moses spent his whole life trying to get somewhere and he never got there. He, He ends up dying in Moab. He's buried in Moab. He wanted to get to the promised land. He never got there. I think of the many number of us that we spend our whole lives trying to get somewhere. I have this picture in my mind of where I want to get, of where I want to be, of what my promised land is. And sometimes our whole life passes by and we never get there. But that doesn't make our life a failure. Because when Moses dies here, the eulogy that's given to him is fourfold. It says four things about Moses. Number one, the highest title that a man can have on planet earth is given to Moses there in verse 5. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord. You cannot be known as something greater in the chronicles of heaven than as a servant of the Lord. And if you die with that title next to your name, you lived a successful life. The servant of the Lord. There is no other thing on all of creation that man was created for but to be the servant of the Lord. It's the very purpose of life itself, to bring him pleasure. And Moses has that on his tombstone, that he was the servant of the Lord. What are you living for? What's the eulogy of your life, the title that will be placed upon your tombstone when you die? It can't be higher than what Moses was. It says in verse 8 that the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there was not arisen in Israel a prophet like unto Moses. And here's number two concerning Moses. Think about this. This is what is written in heaven concerning Moses. And here's it is. Number two is that whom the Lord knew face to face. Is that that's the, the earmark of his life looking over the whole span of what was. He's not only the servant of the Lord, but he's a man whom the Lord knew face to face. He was so intimately connected and attached to the God of his salvation that he knew him face to face. He heard his voice. He communed with him. And then number three in verse 11, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. Number three is that he was a faithful witness to those that were lost. He was a faithful witness in Egypt that he rightly represented God and that he was a faithful, faithful in his testimony and what he was sent to do in Egypt. And then number four in verse 12, and, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel, and that is that he was a good witness amongst his own people. And God says that's a successful life to me. If a person lives their life in service and in faithfulness to me, And if a person lives in fellowship with me, knowing me, hearing my voice, and obeying my commands, and if a person rightly represents me both to those in the world and those that are their fellow brothers and sisters in the church, God says, that's a successful life. You might never attain that thing that you're hoping for, that thing that you're thinking, or that vision that you have. 
But that might not mean in God's eyes that you're not being successful. So we finish uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and we see the eulogy of, of Moses. I believe as we close, and the musicians can come, that the thing that this world needs now, in our day, the world that you and I live in, the thing that this world needs now more than ever at any other time is the world needs a faithful witness. Someone who's going to know God face to face. Someone who's going to give their life to his service and to his ways and that's going to walk in his path. That's going to know the fathering hand of the Lord. That's going to walk in the fortune of what he's given. And then to reflect that to a lost and dying world. That's what this world needs right now. I don't think there's anything left. I don't think the world needs a new church. It doesn't need a new form of government. It doesn't need another mission organization. Those things are all good in their place. But where we're at right now, what what God's looking for and what he sees when he looks at us, he's looking for people that are just going to walk with him. People that will shine as lights in this dark world. That'll listen to his testimony, that will walk with them and then carry that with them where they go. That other people might look at your life and say, that person walks with Jesus. They're not perfect. We're not perfect. We know that. But that we're not marring our testimony by being one thing in church or saying one thing or, you know, maybe professing one thing but living something totally other and ruining that witness. And so God's looking for that witness. You say, well, how do we do that? Listen, just know him. Walk with him. Be obedient to him. Enjoy him. Let him prosper your life the way that he wants to. And the witness part happens automatically. Because people look at your life, they look at you and me, and they see something and they say, that's, that's life. That's what it's all about. And that's what this world needs right now. Some of you tonight are here, and you're the prodigal. You're living as far away from God as you can without crossing the boundary of forsaking his blessing. And you're looking at his hand and you're longing for what's in it, but his face is, 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 is not of concern or of importance to you. Turn back. Come back. Look at his face. Consider. Stop and see. See the end of the path that you're on and see the path that he has for you. That's what God wants. It's what he's looking for in our lives. What if God said to you tonight, like he said to Moses, this is it. You're going to heaven. Get things in order, climb Mount Nebo, you're coming home. What would the engraving be upon your tombstone? What would heaven say as they looked at your life? They lived for what? They were the servant of? What is it? It's a great question for us to ask ourselves as we come to this point at the end of Deuteronomy. We move from here into the book of Judges, I mean the book of Joshua, a book of victory. A book of possession. A book of, you know, the victorious Christian life. And so, let's pray. (laughs) Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to hear your heart. To study your word. To be brought up in your testimonies. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. That we might be those people, Lord, that are blessed of the Lord. That know you face to face. And so take the things that we heard tonight and cause them to be planted within our heart that we might know your will and know your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.